Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The words of scripture I would like to use for our meditation this morning are taken from the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, and chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. And I'd like to read them from the translation produced by the American Bible Society known as today's English version. Have reverence for Christ in your hearts and make him your Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. The end of all things is near. You must be self-controlled and alert to be able to pray. Above everything, love one another earnestly because love covers many sins. Open your homes to each other without complaining. Each one as a good manager of God's different gifts must use for the good of others the special gift he has received from God. Whoever preaches must preach God's word. Whoever serves must serve with the strength that God gives him so that in all things praise may be given to God through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So far the word of scripture. It is a real privilege to have the opportunity to bring greetings to our fellow Christians from Long Island Lutheran High School, to you, our supporters and fellow believers here at St. Luke. I see parents of former and present students and of alumni who have supported us through their gifts and students and prayers as well as have all members of St. Luke in the past these 16 years of our existence at the school because as Pastor Messerschmidt mentioned St. Luke is a member of the Association of Churches that has made this gospel ministry possible and we think of it as the school of all these supporting churches and we earnestly hope that your prayers and gifts and the sending of your children to our school will continue. When we go out to prepare and present a message to our fellow Christians in our supporting churches, we have a number of obligations. We must, of course, as in every Lutheran church on Sunday morning, preach the gospel, even as our text says, he who preaches, let him preach the word of God. We want to tell you something about the work of ministry that we do, which is the same work that is laid upon the hearts and minds of all Christians, and that is to bring people to the saving gospel. To do all these things in the allotted 20 or so minutes of a Lutheran sermon is not always a simple thing. I'd like to begin by telling something about the experiences I've had in a particular course at Lutheran High School that combines some of the elements that I've been talking about. We have a class at Lutheran High School called Christian Ethics. 
And one of the requirements of all the students taking this course, which is open to juniors and seniors, is that each one of those students must go out and must interview an adult who is engaged in the line of work that student himself or herself is preparing to enter. Preferably, this should be a stranger. This can be done either on a tape recording or by bringing the adult into class and performing the interview right there. Now the purpose of this is to carry out the admonition and directive of the apostle when he says, be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you. These students go out to see whether adults in their line of work are ready to answer questions about their religious hope. And to make sure that we ask the questions in the right way, the class spent some time in making up a list that should be asked of people to find out if their, as the gospel says, reverence is for Christ in their hearts. Here are some of the questions that are prepared and that the students ask. What do you believe about God? Who is he and what is he like? What do you believe about heaven and hell? What is it like? How do you explain the presence of evil in your life and in the world? What is your purpose in life? Have you changed your purpose over the years? Are you meeting it? Do you consider yourself to be a happy person? And what is your happiness or lack of it based upon? Do you think about miracles? Do they occur? Did they occur in the Bible? What is the greatest miracle that you could possibly think of? What does your baptism mean to you? What does it mean to you when you go to communion? And most of all, what is the meaning of the Christian life? What does it mean to you if the person is indeed a Christian? What does it mean to you to be a Christian? Now, I can imagine that the same thoughts have been going through your minds that go through the minds of these adults, and there have been a great variety of them over the years, people of all kinds, scientists, businessmen, pastors, teachers, vicars, professors, bus drivers, church organists, all kinds of people. Imagine the same thoughts go through your minds as you listen to these questions that go through their minds. What would I say? What do you say if a person would come to you and ask you these questions? The answers are rather various also. Let me give you a few examples. Some are rather unexpected, some are to be expected. All too often, the person will voluntarily bring up the fact that he or she used to go to church, but somehow or other, it's not so important to them anymore, or they've just somehow happened to let it slip. A great many will say, that's really a very tough question you're asking. I had no idea you would ask questions of this kind. One person came from an adjoining room. The student went to an office and interviewed a person in that particular business, and there was a knock on the door, and another person came in and said, I heard some of these questions through the wall, I want to be asked those questions also because no one has ever asked me these things. All too often someone will say, I haven't thought about these 
things since I was a child, since I was in confirmation, since I was in Sunday school. And there'll be a long pause. And they'll say, let me think about this for a moment. Occasionally and joyfully we hear on the tape and in person people say, I'm glad you asked that. I'm eager to talk about it. Another requirement of the course is that each student put in writing after each interview what he or she thought of what the person said in response to these questions. And what the students respond to these interviews is often also very surprising and revealing. Every so often one will say, I want to do that again. I had a lot of fun talking to a person about God. One student said, I want to do five more. I want to call my congressman and ask him these questions. I didn't do it so well the first time. I want to do it again. I said, by all means, call the president if you want to. Let's ask all people we meet what their hope is based on. Students are very quick in pointing out contradictions in the answers. When it's all over, they'll say, didn't that person know that what he said at the end of the interview was a total contradiction to what he said in the beginning and that obviously his religion is not very consistent or well thought out? And all too often they'll say, why did the person hesitate so long? If God is so important in his life, why does he have to sit there and say, well, let me put this another way? And that's really a tough question. Let's read again what the Apostle Peter tells us to do when we go to witness to people. Three things. Have reverence for Christ in your hearts and make him your Lord. That's number one. You can hardly witness to something you don't have. You can't witness very well if the knowledge is just up here. If we can just answer a question, yes, Christ lived at a certain time, this is what happened to him, and then he died and he rose again. That's not making him your Lord. That's not having reverence for Christ. That's only passing a history lesson. That's the prerequisite. Reverence for Christ and making him our Lord. Then number two will be very easy. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you. If you've got hope in your heart, it's easy to talk about it. If you don't have it, you're a hypocrite if you have a ready answer. Because you can't say with conviction something that you don't believe. And the third requirement is do it with gentleness and respect. You can hardly win people for Christ by insulting them. And let's face it, all of Christian education at St. Luke, at Lutheran High School, at home, in our private study of the Word of God, it's all for the same purpose, and that is to be able effectively, with gentleness and respect, to go to our fellow man and to bring him the hope we have in, him, in us so that he or she, too, will want that hope in their hearts. That's the entire purpose of Lutheran High School. I don't care what subject you learn, I don't care what line of work you go into in your life. As a Christian, the only reason is to prepare you to meet other people in that line of work so that you can more effectively, with gentleness and respect,
tell them the hope you have in your heart through Christ. People sometimes come up and ask me, particularly in conventions, and say, you teach physics in a Christian school, what's Christian physics? Christian physics, I tell them, is physics taught by a Christian in a place where he can tell his physics students the hope he has in his heart as a Christian. So that when they go out and become whatever they become, they can also freely and openly and with ready answers talk about the reverence they have in their hearts for Jesus Christ. That's the overriding purpose of Christian education. And if that doesn't happen, we're wasting people's money. What's the key in whatever subject or in whatever walk of life you find yourself to having this ready, ready answer for the reverence in Christ? It is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. In the Gospel today, we heard how Jesus went to the synagogue and he opened the Bible. And he said, this that you have heard today is being fulfilled. The entire New Testament is filled with quotations and references to the Old Testament, to the Word of God, to show the hearers and readers that the Word of God is the basis of their hope in their hearts. How often don't we read when Jesus himself or when the apostles preach, it is written. And if we don't know what is written, how can we tell somebody else it is written? We should be able to say it and to write it to people in our letters, in our speech, in our conversation, without carrying a Bible along. We should know it here so that we can use it whenever it is possible and desirable. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, over and over he said, it is written. Not just to show that Jesus knew the Bible well, but to show us how to get rid of the devil in temptation. It is written. And in the letters that Paul and the other apostles wrote, over and over, it is written so that you can see that Christ, that Jesus is the promised Savior and Christ. If you've read much in the translation of the Bible known as the Jerusalem Bible, you will know that in the New Testament particularly, any quotation from the Old Testament is in italics. Even when it does not say it is written or Isaiah said, any reference, any quotation, or any seeming reference is in italics. I was surprised to find that there is hardly a page in the New Testament where the writer does not quote from the Old. And even in last Sunday's Gospel of the story of the wedding of Cana, I was amazed to find that when Mary went to the servants to say to them, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it, that very likely that sentence that she spoke was a quotation from the Old Testament that she had learned as a child. Because when you look back in Genesis chapter 41, verse 55, you'll find that in the story of Joseph and Pharaoh, when there was a famine in the land, the people came to Pharaoh and said, where are we going to get something to eat? Pharaoh told the people, go to Joseph, and whatever he tells you to do, that do. 
Now, I know that from my own upbringing, that story was so familiar, the wedding of Cana, I never gave it a second thought that Mary would say to these servants, whatever he tells you, do it. But when you think about it, wouldn't it have been a more natural reaction for her to say, when Jesus said, what have I to do with you, that she would just leave and not do anything? But she thought and said, I remember in the Old Testament, in a similar case, where there was need, where there was no food, the words that were used, whatever he tells you to do, do. Could it be that that knowledge of the Old Testament paved the way for Christ's first miracle? It is written. But there is more. There is more that we need than just what is written. We need, as the Apostle Peter says, to do our witnessing with gentleness and respect. Paul puts it another way in Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Be tactful with those who are not Christians and be sure you make the best use of your time with them. Talk to them agreeably and with a flavor of wit and try to fit your answers to the needs of each one. Especially if it happens to be a stranger, you may only talk to that person once. To do it with wit, that we can often do. To make light talk, to talk about the Super Bowl, to talk about everything else, that's easy. But to be tactful and to make the best use of our time in relating the hope that is within us, that comes harder. But, as I'm sure many of you know, the results can often be not only unexpected, but extremely heartwarming. Let me read to you just a sentence or two from a letter that I got just a few weeks ago from a student who had our Christian ethics course that I've been describing to you and who is now in college. He writes, Dear Mr. Trinkline, I sometimes sit on the beach, I don't know which college that is where you sit on the beach, or during class and think about some of the things we discuss. I've met a few people from all over the world and I've tried to tell them about using religion in their lives to work out of difficult problems. One man I've met is a drug user. Since I met him, however, I have told him about God and Jesus. I tried not to sound like a pastor. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But I'm sure I did. Anyhow, he is now a jogging partner of mine and we discuss everything and anything we feel bothers us. I feel like I'm on a cloud sometimes when I think of how Luhai helped me to help those people. I really can't explain how I feel in writing, but I just wanted to say thank you for doing so much for my mind. I don't think I've ever felt so confident and full of life. When I read that letter, it reminded me of another instance of a student away at college. Quite a contrast, however. This other fellow, when he left for school, was warned by his father that when he gets to college into this completely different way of life, he should be very careful that as a Christian, he may find many of the things that go on there very disturbing and that he should not be misled by temptation, should be careful how he acts and what he says and does. About a month later, the father got a letter from this student and it started out, Dear Dad, you didn't have to worry at all. There was nothing to be concerned about over all those things that you warned me about because nobody here at college knows that I'm a Christian. Not so to be, says our text. 
we are to have an answer ready for the hope for the people about the hope that is in us. But finally, the text tells us one other rather disturbing and urging thing. It says, the end of all things is near. Now, people are always saying, of course, there are those who predict the end of the world at all times, and they predict gloom and doom at any moment. Of course, one thing is for sure, and that is that the end will only come once. If the end had already come, we wouldn't be here telling people the end is near. What do we see today? And I'd like to close with just a thought or two about what I see in my field of science, that indeed what the apostle is talking about is taking place, that the end of all things is near, and that we had better hurry up and be about the business that our Lord and Savior wants us to be about. Have you ever in your lifetime seen as much interest and even morbid curiosity about unusual and mystifying and occult things as today. The UFO, the Bermuda Triangle, <coughs> exorcism, anything that seems unexplainable and mystifying is receiving top coverage today. More so than what is known and what has been discovered and tested in the field of science which used to make big headlines 10 and 15 years ago. I see something else happening. I see today a convergence of two fields that for the last hundred years have drifted farther and farther apart. I'm talking about the convergence of the areas of science and religion. For a hundred years, the church and the scientists have been doing battle in the last 10 years, the two have become almost one. And I want to give you just an example or two of what I'm talking about. I don't know whether you paid particular attention around Christmas time to the cover story in Time magazine about the star Bethlehem. 10 years ago, this would not have occurred in Time or in the planetariums and classrooms of our nation. But here's a science story that starts and dwells upon and ends with quotations from the Bible. And it says, above all, what is most significant about the star of Bethlehem is not whether it existed or what it was, but what it symbolizes. And on another page it says, most cosmologists, and those are scientists who study the beginning of the world, agree, most cosmologists today agree that the biblical account of creation in imagining an initial void may be uncannily close to the truth. And then it goes on to say that scientists today are agreed that the world will end not the way they used to think by freezing to death, which we can well imagine today, but according to new theories of cosmology, and as indeed it says in scripture, that the world will end in a fervent heat when the sun explodes. A few months ago, I had the privilege to attend a convention in Washington, D.C. of some 500 scientists from countries around the world. The keynote address was given by Sir John Eccles, a Nobel Prize winner and one of the most respected scientists in the world who lives in Switzerland today. And in talking to the scientists after this address, I found almost complete and unanimous agreement with these rather disturbing thoughts of Sir John Eccles. 
He said the bright future promised for mankind by the creators of science and its aftermath has not come to pass. No claim should be made today that absolute values have been attained in any human enterprise. No claim must be made that any scientific hypothesis is an absolute truth. Then he goes on to talk about the overriding fear that people have today of their own death. And he says, we must not conclude that our life as self-conscious beings has no meaning or future beyond the drama played out on this earth. I personally believe that we have a supernatural origin and destiny. And he closes his address by saying, this conference should contribute to the restoration of faith in values as guiding human endeavor. We ask no more than that it should aid in spiritual renewal. What I'm saying is that science and many other human enterprises have radically changed in the last few years. And that science particularly, quite apart from what we learned and what I learned in classrooms and out of textbooks, no longer talks about absolute natural laws. It no longer talks about miracles as being impossible. I want to close with part of an essay delivered by Dr. Kupke, professor of biophysics at the University of Virginia, on how we must teach our students today that science is not the learning of absolute natural laws, but that it is rather something almost religious today. He says there is no common sense basis anymore for saying that miracles are impossible. And the 20th century physicist no longer regards them as so. Miracles could have happened in just the way depicted in the Bible and still be in full accord with the laws of God's creation. He says we experience matter as a manifestation of laws and not that laws reside in matter. In other words, things don't have to happen because there are laws, but rather we watch things happen and then make up laws to fit it. This is quite different from the science of 50 years ago. We're no longer talking about absolute matter, he says, that the world is made of little bits called atoms. It rather, he says, is the fact that modern physics has become almost theological, for we seem to have come full circle with the world being constructed from principles rather than from bits of matter. And this scientist ends his essay by quoting John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. What is our duty as a Christian? Let's just look at the passage from Peter once more. Have reverence for Christ in your hearts and make him your Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. Never before in my lifetime has the world been more ready for this threefold witness to our faith. Amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of us, now and forever. Amen.